Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we conclude our series on the book of Habakkuk with a message entitled, The Important Conclusions on God and the Problem of Evil. So let's turn to the book of Habakkuk as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm fairly sure that after today, some of you will be most frustrated by what I say and others deeply satisfied. I'm going to say that the reason why so many never feel that the problem of evil is resolved for them, it's because of the way they approach it. And if you continually approach the problem from the same vantage point, you'll never feel satisfied with your answer. Indeed, you might feel there can be no answer. You know, a little illustration is going to help here. Imagine you're driving a semi-trailer truck with a long tandem attached to it. And you have to take a left turn, but to your dismay, you're going to find out that it's more than a right angle turn. It's more than 90 degrees to the left. Indeed, you find the road that you're to turn onto partially doubles back in the same direction you came from. It's an extremely hard left turn. And you look at that left-hand turn and the angle, well, it, it seems impossible. No matter how hard you try, that big rig, well, it was not designed for a turn like that. It'll just never make it. You're going to jackknife the truck or, or run the truck off the road. No matter how hard you try, that's not a makeable angle. But now imagine for a moment you drive right by that impossible turn and then you find a way to double back. Now you're approaching that turn from the opposite direction. See, that same turn is now a very modest right-hand turn, a turn that an amateur might easily make with a big rig. So what's the difference? The difference is entirely in the direction from which you approach the problem. And I'm going to say this is also the case when we talk about the problem of evil. From one direction of approach, the problem of evil will always seem insurmountable. I mean, when we approach the problem starting with evil and then ending up as God's inquisitor, demanding of him that he answer to us how he could allow such a thing to exist, well, we jackknife the rig and end up in the ditch. Whether we talk about human suffering or about moral evil, when we begin demanding of God how he would allow such a thing to happen, we're never going to find the answer. Think about everything that you've read and heard about the answers that so many give to God and the problem of evil. Let me suggest one frequently given answer. The answer goes like this. What if God has greater purposes in mind, we say? And the critic responds, but how can those greater purposes possibly justify the gassing of six million Jews at the hand of a moral monster during the Second World War? What possibly can be a greater purpose than to protect the lives of the innocent at the hands of a man who can only be described as antichrist. You see the problem? We're soon jackknifed the truck. We're in the ditch. There's no way forward. But there are other possible answers to our dilemma. Some say, well, perhaps God has decided to allow human beings to exercise their own free moral choice. What if we're free moral agents and perhaps God has decided to allow us to feel the awful nature of our moral choices? But again, the critic isn't satisfied by that. What about the free moral choice of the unborn child who's aborted in the womb? What of the free moral choice of the child in Aleppo, where savage warfare takes off her legs in a bomb? 
Why is the free moral choice of evil men tolerated and the free moral choice of a child who plays in the streets and dreams of becoming someone or something, why are her free moral choices not respected? Why only the choices of the monster? You know, furthermore, the critics are just getting wound up. Sometimes it does seem as if God really does intervene. I mean, we hear of someone who's narrowly escaped a serious accident of some kind, and, and then we hear them saying, well, I know that someone up there is looking out after me. Well, fair enough. But then we hear of a freak accident in another place where amazingly someone dies. So what do we say then? That someone out there is gunning for them? I mean, what kind of a God simply rolls the dice and allows one to die and the other live? I mean, do you hear the anger and and those kinds of things that people will say? Again, as before, when we try to negotiate the turn from one direction, the truck is jackknifed and there is no way forward. But then the Christian apologist might appeal to the mystery of God's infinite wisdom, a wisdom that we might not be able to comprehend. For God knows that when he allows something in one place and prevents something in another, he knows how all of that's going to play out. Well, again, fair enough. But the critic responds, then if that's true, God has given me no justification for such actions. How do I know that such a thing is really true after all? I have no reason for believing it. And so on and on the arguments go. And just like the semi-truck trying to negotiate that 30-degree left-hand turn, no matter how hard we try, we always end up stuck. We finally throw up our hands in despair and pronounce this one of the great mysteries of life. Now, that's the philosophical side to the argument. Let me make this matter a lot more personal. You know, I have a very dear friend who, before I met him, suffered terribly. He was then a young pastor, and he was a married man, and he had a wonderful wife, and he had two very lovely little children. And one day he came home to find his wife and family not at home. And the police pulled into the driveway right behind him. There had been an accident, they said. In an instant, he found out that he had lost his entire family. You know, my dear precious friend is remarried now. He has two lovely children. He has a second wife. But I'll never forget the day that he came and told me, you know, today, today would have been my first son's birthday. And that's all he said. I wanted to weep for him. I knew that even though God had truly blessed him, he has a wound that will never go away. His eyes are never going to see the birthdays and the graduations and the weddings and the grandchildren and the years of living life together and sharing in the grace of God. But he has found his hope in God, and he is a joyful man. But you, my dear listener, if you've only ever driven your semi-trailer from one vantage point, You will never negotiate around that turn. You'll either deeply fall into despair or you'll bear an anger towards the God who created you for himself. As long as we start with our deepest wounds and overwhelming sorrows and seek the answer to the agonizing cry of a suffering heart, we will always feel dissatisfied. There really is another place from where we can negotiate that turn. We have to approach it from a different direction. And that's the place where the book of Habakkuk can be such a wonderful book of instruction. Habakkuk, just like any one of us, begins by asking God why he tolerates evil in the world. In his case, it was injustice and violence that had become a part of life in Jerusalem. It was about the rich and the powerful taking advantage of the poor. And that kind of a question isn't unusual, you know. Why are some people born into squalor? And if you don't know it yet, you should. 
This earth is filled with wealth. There are natural resources in this earth and the gift of the human intellect that allows us to harness the earth's resources in such a way that we can both maintain sustainability and bless every single human being with bounty. There is no other reason for world poverty other than human evil and greed and manipulation of resources and trampling on the rights of the poor and the powerless. And so we, like Habakkuk, see injustice, and we also see violence. And we see it when we read the newspaper, and we, and we might have experienced it personally. And when there is bullying at school or at work, we feel it all the more. The examples of injustice are legion, and we too want to ask God why he allows this. But did you notice in our study of Habakkuk how he negotiated that turn? It's not that he kept hammering away at it. His answer comes in two stages. The first stage is the assurance that God really does work out his justice in time. No one's getting away with anything. The wheels of God's justice may proceed ever so slowly, but they really do grind ever so exceedingly fine. Nothing is missed by God. And from that vantage point, We might think of the great white throne pictured in Revelation 20. A day of justice is surely coming. It will not be avoided. But this sure knowledge that in the book of Habakkuk that that Babylon is going to be judged, it's still not the final answer to the problem of evil. For indeed, we might find that if that's the only answer that we have, we still have a corner that just can't be negotiated. Because we might ask, why is judgment taking so long? Or, Or why is evil even permitted in the first place? And once we allow ourselves to think this way as before, we find ourselves unable to navigate the corner. Is there another way to deal with the problem of evil? Indeed, Habakkuk chapter 3, the the chapter of worship and of the glory of God, is that way. The other way to approach the issue of God and the problem of evil and suffering is not to start with the suffering itself, but to start at the place of worship and at the place of the grandeur and the greatness of God and our longing after Him. It doesn't matter where you live. The secular culture around the globe has taken its hold in our communities. It's clear that as Christians, we can't isolate ourselves from the culture around us. We need to be set apart, but how can we do that? If Christians are called to do more than just condemn what is wrong, how do we do it? There's a culture that exists today that is destructive and harmful. So how can we live as an alternative to it? How can we truly live out the alternative lifestyle that God has called us to live? Well, the first step is to open the Bible and see what God's Word has to say. In Dr. Newfeld's series, An Alternative Lifestyle, Dr. John does just that by diving into the book of Philemon. And we're excited to offer the series to you on CD as our gift. To get your copy of An Alternative Lifestyle, all you need to do is visit us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. At first glance, we might think that a resolution to the problem of evil is just, well, it's impossible. God is good and all-powerful, and yet evil exists. But as I've said, as long as we continue to approach this problem from that perspective alone, we never seem satisfied and there's no way forward. 
when in the Old Testament, Asaph kept butting his head up against this problem, according to Psalm 73, verse 2. He said that his steps had nearly slipped. Indeed, he had almost lost his faith. And so is there really another way to approach the problem of evil? Well, indeed, there is. But you can't start with a problem of evil. You have to start with the nature of God. Habakkuk chapter 3 begins with the words, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. And then as the chapter unfolds, the glory of God is being revealed. God's presence at Sinai, the plagues of Egypt, the fact that nature itself does God's bidding, the the ever-presence of God's glory on this earth, the overwhelming splendor of the Eternal One, all of this leaves the prophet trembling uncontrollably. And in this, the prophet concludes that he will both wait patiently for God's justice and he will rejoice in the Lord. See, what Habakkuk speaks about is reiterated in so many other Bible passages. You know, one excellent example of that is found in Psalm 27, which is a psalm of David. Now, you will notice as we read that psalm, the presence of evil is there. But you're also going to notice that the presence of God overshadows the presence of evil. So I'm reading the first three verses. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. But we have to ask this question. What makes David so confident? Is it that he's confident that God's going to destroy his enemies? Well, yeah, he is that. But if that's all we see, I think we're going to miss the key to the entire psalm. So let me read verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, just so that we don't misunderstand, that sentiment is repeated often by David. Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. You see, panting after God, saying, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I might gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Or let me put it another way. I have one all-consuming passion, that I might be given the ultimate joy, that, that I might see God and find my pleasure in seeing him, who is my reason for existing. It's not ultimately the defeat of my enemies that I seek. It is that, that my enemies would not be able to take from me what I want more than anything else, that one consuming thing. And so as we follow through Psalm 27, we need to hear the theme that gets continually repeated. Verse 6, And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Forward to verse 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. And then the intense request that follows from that. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. And then in the next verse, the hope that's there. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. And then down to verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You know, what's unmistakable is this passionate longing to see, to experience, to revel in, to find pleasure in the revelation of the glory of God. 
And that reminds us of Habakkuk's assurance in Habakkuk 2 verse 14, where he says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk was assured that though evil would have its day, yet evil would weary itself for nothing, for nothing will stop the earth from being filled with the glory of the Lord. Imagine finally and ultimately settling within our minds that there is no greater thing that we can desire but to find our moment-by-moment joy in God, that Jesus really does become our bread of life, that we find every word that comes from the mouth of God far more necessary than our daily bread, that for the sake of the glory of the kingdom, we would gladly forego all other pleasures and even, as Paul says, count all other advantages in life as dung or as manure over against the joy of knowing God in the face of Christ Jesus our Lord. Now imagine for me, just for a moment, having that as our direction in life. Imagine also what Paul writes in in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, for Paul, his driving ambition, the one thing that he desired above all others, was not that he might plant churches, or that he might even succeed in his missionary endeavors, but the one overarching passion that simply eclipsed everything else is that he might know him, and that in knowing him, that he might know him fully enough, that he might even invite or welcome a share in Christ's sufferings, and therefore participate with him in his resurrection. You know, to a man like that, sufferings and the problem of evil look so very different. He's approaching the turn from a different direction. It's not that suffering, when it happens, feels any easier. You know, suffering is always suffering. Painful experiences still remain remarkably painful. And that's true whether people do evil things to us in in order to bring harm to us. And it's also true if we become ill or if a loved one dies or if some other thing occurs that leaves us with wounds and scars. There's still wounds and scars. But we remain confident in God. Though all things are taken from us, we have nurtured within our souls an abiding passion that one thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And so we have confidence that in the midst of our sufferings, we are coming to know Christ, and in our sufferings, we are identifying with him in his sufferings. And furthermore, we are confident that God will only bring those matters into our lives which are for his glory and for our long-term good, a good which is hidden in his glory. Now, we might not understand how, but we do understand that in some fashion, our bond or our union that we share in Christ is being deepened even though we lose all other things. But what happens if that's not the direction from which we view the evil that occurs? See, in that case, Christ was not our highest joy. We may have had joy in things that are not bad in and of themselves. I mean, perhaps our joy was in our marriage or in our family or in some other ideal that we wanted to happen in our lives and and how we wanted our lives to end in a good fashion. But in all of this, we had wanted God to promise us that these things would never be removed from us. And then when we lost them, we came to a non-negotiable turn in the road and the way forward simply ended. And then comes the day of evil, 
and all that we'd lived for is painfully and horribly torn away from us. And what then? See, from that direction, from, from that pathway of approaching the hour of evil, well, we find that we're unable to make the turn. How could a good God have allowed such a thing to take place? Like the example of the semi-trailer, which is jackknifed, there's no way forward. We're left with either a painful cry or a, a fist raised in anger or a lifetime of unremitting remorse. Now, the bad news is, the hour of evil or of suffering lies before every single human being. My dear listener, you're not going to escape it. All that's left is that we approach the turn from a different angle. Paul writes in Romans 8:35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? Hey, that's the question, isn't it? And then he provides an answer. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Habakkuk 2 verse 4 says, The just shall live by faith. And since all of my hearers will come to the turn off in the road, and suffering will come upon you, might I call upon you to ask of God something today? He's going to give it to you, I promise, if you ask in faith. Ask him that you might have no higher joy or no greater purpose in living than to know the love of God and to be identified with Jesus Christ. One thing have I asked. John, this has been an incredible series, and I thank you for it very much. But i got to ask you a question. Is this possibly one of the most difficult issues of faith that you had to teach? Yeah, I think it's not only the most difficult issue that I've had to teach, I think it's the most difficult issue that anyone ever goes through. Um, you know, I think we need to say it again. If, if you haven't suffered yet, you're going to. And your faith is going to depend upon the perspective that you take of the suffering that you endure. Yeah, you know, it's suffering in the world. It's evil that men do to us. It's, you know, the outbreak of disease and, and, and unexpected twists in the road that suddenly take us in a direction. I mean, I've heard all sorts of people will say that one thing in my life ruined my life. And so they circle around that one thing forever. And I want to say this most sensitively. I mean, if I possibly can communicate to you that I, too, have had these amazing reversals in my life. But if you put your hope in the Lord... It is becoming the best thing in your life because it will help you to concentrate on the fact that God is your all in all. It will sustain you in the day of trouble. Thanks so much, John. Join us again right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Have you ever wondered how to live a life of faithfulness and service to Christ? For those of us not working in full-time ministry, it can be hard to find ways to be faithful to our Savior in the daily routines of life. Is it possible to live a life of unwavering faithfulness? I'd like to invite you to join in and listen as we work through a five-message series on the book of 3 John. 3 John is the shortest book in the New Testament, and in spite of its brevity, this book provides us with a portrait of what Christians in the early church did when it came to living a life of faith. Third John provides us with a reference point of what a life of faithfulness should look like, even if we don't work in full-time ministry. 
It's amazing what God can do when we allow ourselves to be taught by His Word. This encouraging series will be aired next week, so listen to this station every day to follow along with the series, or listen online at backtothebible.ca.